We're going to, to get started. We have uh, a really rich topic for this morning. Rich in the, in the sense that there's a lot to do, a lot of, a lot of text, a lot of ideas, um, I think a lot of uh, thought-provoking things to see. Uh, also a slightly disturbing topic, um, so uh, I apologize for the, for the times that it's, it's a, a, a bit grisly. Um, it's not, you know, we're not, we're not contemplating uh, the act of dying all that much, but it is the topic of martyrdom, uh, obviously involves stories and uh, texts about, about people uh, dying for various purposes. Um, so it is a bit, uh, uh, oh, it's a bit obsessed with death. Sorry about that. Um, the, I guess by way of introduction, let me, let me say a few things and then... Uh, we're going to spend some time with Chavruta, learning, reading primarily, especially at the beginning, some of these texts to ourselves and then talking about them as a group. Uh, so, by way of introduction, let me say the following. Uh, probably the fam- most famous Jewish martyr uh, in literature is Rabbi Akiva. Uh, Jewish meaning who died as a Jew. So I'm, I'm excluding Jesus here as a Jew- Jewish martyr. We'll talk more about him. Um, but... Um, I guess Jesus died as a Jew also, but not for his Jewish faith. The uh, Rabbi Akiva will will uh, will spend more time with him later on, but he dies as a kiyum, as a fulfillment of the love of God, and that's something that is really quite remarkable, quite striking about Rabbi Akiva. Uh, it's implicit in the pasuk that he quotes. He says, he, and he dies. He's he's fulfilling the the commandment, fulfilling the mitzvah of to love God with all his soul, um, which he says he was never able to, to fulfill until this very moment of death. That's an amazingly, uh, amazing and amazingly chilling thing to say. Uh, it, it implies, it, it presupposes that dying a martyr's death is actually the only way of fulfilling one of the commandments. The commandment is to love God with all one's soul, and he was not able to do it until he died a martyr's death, which implies, uh, you know, it doesn't lead necessarily to the conclusion, it implies that dying a martyr's death is a positive thing, uh, religiously at least, a positive development in one's life. That if one didn't die a martyr's death, one hasn't been as religiously pious, as observant as one could have been, uh, which is a really... Uh, I don't say horrifying, because that's maybe a little bit exaggerated, um, but it's a, it's a pretty striking thing to, to say. So we'll come back to Rabbi Akiva. We'll, we'll talk more about Rabbi Akiva, the person, and, and where these ideas might come from. Um, but by way of contrast to that, when you think about Tanakh, think the entire Hebrew Bible, uh, there's actually no cases of martyrdom at all. There just are no cases of anyone dying for the religion. Uh, we'll look together... At one of the two half exceptions to that, which are not really exceptions, uh, but sort of apparent exceptions to that, from the book of Daniel, right. sorry, Daniel, they uh, where they don't die. They don't right? die exactly. Die <laughs> exactly. So there's a willingness to die, but they don't die. Uh, but we'll look at that. We'll look at that uh, soon. Uh, but in all of the all of Tanakh, no one dies as a martyr, as what we would identify as a martyr. Of course, a lot of people die. Uh, a lot of people die unnatural deaths, and a lot of people die in in wars and for the Jewish people and so on, but no one dies as a martyr given the choice. Would you give up your religion or would you die? And they choose to die. Um, so, 
So they're not. A, they're not in. They're not. They're not. Well, that's actually the the very first thing that we're going to look at um, is the first story of that, where her name is not Hannah, but um, oh. but there's a woman and her and her sons. That's actually uh, the the most direct connection to Hanukkah uh, in this topic is exactly that that the story of the woman and her seven sons first shows up in the book of the second book of Maccabees, uh, which let's go back to in a minute. Um, so, all right. So that's just so we have Rabbi Akiva on the one hand, sort of this model of dying as a positive act, uh, and all of Tanakh not saying anything about it. So that's not a not meant to be a contradiction, but just an observation. That martyrdom is clearly something that, uh, uh, although it, it looms very large in Jewish thought, especially in the person of Rabbi Akiva, but of course in, in many other stories, unfortunately as well, uh, a lot of which we won't uh, be able to talk about today, but we'll, we'll touch on some of the later stuff also. Um, but, uh, but clearly looms large in later Jewish thought, but it's not obvious from a biblical perspective that this is even a value at all. Um, right. So, all right, so we'll come back to, we'll come back to talk about that. Um, the word martyr, uh, so words, are, words are just words, on the one hand, and on the other hand, they're often indicative of something. Um, martyr is from the Greek word martyr. Uh, witness. witness, yeah, great, witness. Uh, it means witness. Christians yeah. use that a lot. Yeah, so it means witness. Uh, and in, in, uh, in Arabic, in Arabic uh, a martyr, someone who dies for the faith, is a shahid. Um, a shahid is also, also means a witness. For those who, who know Talmudic language or Aramaic, uh, shahid is cognate with sahid. Anan uh, sahadeh, uh, for example, in Aramaic, we testify, we witness. Um, so the, Arab, the Arabic term, which obviously sort of got it from the Greek, because they, they translated the word martyr into Arabic as witness, but someone who dies for the faith, the Christian term martyr, the Muslim term uh, shahid means witness. Um, so in, in those traditions, at least the word indicates that to die for one's faith is to be a witness to something. That's something that we'll have to, we'll have to come back to. Um, Hebrew doesn't use the word aid for, a, for someone who dies for the faith. Uh, the typical term is someone who dies al kiddush Hashem, uh, dies and their death is a sanctification of the name of God. You could stretch um, that to witness a little bit. So, a little bit. The they don't use the word witness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not going to claim it's a totally different world, but, uh, but it's, not, it's not the world witness. Again, we'll come back to, to this when we talk about Rabbi Akiva. Uh, there is a, an echo of the witness uh, idea, at least, in the Pasuk of Shema, I guess we can just say this now, right? There's this very famous enigma about the, uh, about the Pasuk, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, which is the declaration of faith. Right? A, what's the enigma about that Pasuk? Not on any meaning level. Well, the Pasuk is relatively simple to translate, but when you look at the Pasuk in the Torah, there's an odd thing about it. You the know? Ayin the Dalet. The Ayin and the Dalet, the last letter of Shema. And the last letter of Echad are enlarged. enlarged. And the Midrash says, that's because the Ayin and Dalit spell out the word aid, witness. So that's a sort of odd echo link of a connection between witness and Shema, which is connected to martyrdom. Uh, but we'll, we'll come back to, to that, because that's Rabbi Akiva's Pasuk. Yeah, so that, that really, in a way, limits who a martyr is. A, hmm. a martyr is somebody who dies 
declaring that he will not leave his faith. Mm. But how about the martyr as in the Holocaust who died inadvertently? They were victims, damn it! Yeah, okay, so no we'll. Uh, we're, uh, we're not going to get to the Holocaust. We're not going to no, talk I'm explicitly about it. But right, so that's a great question. Right. But not. You know, someone who dies. Right, someone who dies for yeah. being Jewish, but no one gave them an option of not being yeah, Jewish. The body had a choice. Right, right. The sort of classical, right, the classical martyr story has an option to not die by giving something up. Right, exactly. So, um, right, so we will talk more about that. The, already in the Crusades, that shift happened. The Jews are killed. No one asked them anything. They're just killed in the massacre. And, uh, and they're said to be died, to have died al-Kiddush Hashem. They're called Kedoshim. Uh, they're sacralized in a sense. They've become mm-hmm. uh, martyrs. Right, exactly. Um, right, right. No one, no one gave them a way out. Exactly. Uh, so that we will we'll talk about, I hope we'll talk about later today when we turn, uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get back to the story of the woman and her seven sons um, at the end of today, I hope. And uh, that story actually leads us to the Middle Ages also because the story becomes very popular in a context where people are actually dying and sometimes even killing their own children for, uh, uh, for the faith. So, all right. Um, so again, so the terms are, are worthwhile. They're just worth noticing. Uh, they certainly say something about it. Uh, again, you know, I wouldn't push too hard on it. If, if uh, You can't claim that there's no connection between Jewish martyrdom and Christian martyrdom just because they use different words. And at the same time, it's very uh, striking that the Christian and Muslim traditions use words that mean the same thing. Witness, but the Jewish tradition doesn't use that word, although maybe it's in the background there somewhere in some, in some thoughts. Um, it's, the truth is, the fact that we don't have, if we call them uh, martyrs today in English, um, that suggests actually a foreignness to this, to this whole discussion. The talk about Jewish martyrs is a bit of, a, of an oxymoron. Jews don't talk about martyrs. Jews talk about people dying off Kiddush Hashem for the sanctification of God's name. Uh, martyr is, is, is uh, in a sense, uh, a, Christian, a Christian term. So a lot of what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of hours is the different ways in which this idea of dying for the religion has been mobilized or not mobilized. What did it mean? What was the power of it? Who would do it? Was there an option? Was there not an option? Um, was it even positive, uh, as, as we hear in Rabbi Akiva? Or, uh, or is it just sort of a way of avoiding something even worse? Uh, as we'll see in <coughs> some of the other texts. Um, so to give you a, a bit of an overview, um, not you don't have to flip through right now, but to give you a bit of an overview, the first, uh, the longest text section is the first one, and that's uh, because I just couldn't make it any shorter, and it's in it's in English anyway. Uh, so the first few pages here, I'm going to introduce in a, in a moment, are excerpts, relatively long ex- excerpts from the two books of Maccabees. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. Um, and that's where we do have the story of the woman and her seven, seven sons in, in the second book of Maccabees. Uh, and then right after that is one of the two uh, aborted uh, cases of martyrdom in the book of Daniel, um, where someone's willing to die for their faith but doesn't. Uh, so those, those texts are... Uh, we're not going to spend that much time, and we'll spend some time talking about them, but not all that much. Uh, it's really, I do want you to read them though, so in a, in a few minutes I'm going to ask everyone to, to spend some time reading through these, through these stories, and then we'll uh, talk, about them, talk about them together. Um, Alright, so that's the, the first part. Then we're going to turn to 
Um, we're going to turn to uh, some early Christian sources, uh, which you have after that. Um, not too much, but uh, a little bit about Jesus himself, just a, a bit. Uh, and then more importantly, I really just picked one text out of uh, a whole series that we could have used um, of Christian martyrdom texts, where people, Christians, early Christian, Christians, when Christianity was illegal uh, and therefore subject to being uh, killed just for being Christian, uh, Christians actually die for the faith. And, in, and we'll talk more about this, but in early, uh, essentially early times of the, of the Tanaim, uh, Christians could be killed for being Christian. Jews would not be killed for being Jews. It was not illegal to be Jewish, but it was illegal to be Christian. Um, and so Christians martyr themselves with some regularity, whereas Jews don't. And uh, that has, I think, some really interesting implications. So we'll, we'll have a lot more time to think about it soon. Um, it has some interesting implications for the way Jews thought about martyrdom as well. Uh, so we'll, we'll come back to that. Come back to that. Um, then after... After that, we will come back to Rabbi Akiva uh, to talk more about what's, uh, what's distinctive about Rabbi Akiva, and we'll we'll spend some time, depending on how how time goes until then, we'll spend some time on Rabbi Akiva, the person, Rabbi Akiva, his death, uh, Rabbi Akiva, his thought that is reflected in his death, and then there's two more topics, and again, this is going to have to depend on how how much time uh, we've spent on things. Um, one which I would certainly uh, very much like to spend some time on is the halakhic uh, discussion, uh, the legal discussion in rabbinic literature on what's often called martyrdom, but it's actually a, a, a different kind of, of, uh, of idea where, where someone's not dying so much for the faith um, as much as, let's say, dying to avoid killing someone else. Um, it's also connected to the question of dying rather than worshipping another god, so we'll, we'll look at that. We'll look at that together, um, and we'll try to we'll try to actually ask the question whether those are very very different. And is, is if someone asks me to to worship an idol or they will kill me, and let's say I'm obligated to die rather than worship an idol, and the same thing is true if someone asks me to worship to kill someone else or they will kill me, and again I'm obligated to give up my life rather than kill someone else, are those comparable or are those actually totally different sorts of legal decisions? So that's that's what we'll talk more about. Uh, when we get to this, technically section five, and then and then the last section, we hopefully will get back to the woman and her seven sons, which has a really fascinating history after the books of Maccabees. It shows up in rabbinic literature, and then it winds its way to medieval Jews through different sources. So that's um, I'm not sure how much we'll we'll get to spend time on that, but that's that's our basic our basic agenda. Yeah. We talk about heroes. I think you're already a hero because you can try to. <laughs> Well, I gave up very little, so this is, uh, <laughs> um, other, than, other than trees. The trees are the martyrs for our class. <laughs> uh, all, right. yeah. all right, so, so yeah, so we, there's a lot here. Uh, I'm really not sure, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I tried to, I do have a, a rough time plan, but I'm not sure how it will go, um, and we'll see. Uh, the last unit, the, the woman and her seven sons, I would like to get to. Um, I'm not sure how many people here are planning on being here tomorrow, uh, it does connect, uh, not seamlessly, but it does connect to what I'm teaching about tomorrow also. So if we don't get to it today uh, in enough detail, I might do some of that tomorrow. Um, even if there's totally different people, that would, that would, not be, uh, that would work well enough. Um, but obviously, if we don't get to it and you can't be here tomorrow, that would be even better for me. Um, Are you doing the same source sheet tomorrow? Uh, no, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Different topic tomorrow. 
Uh, okay, so, so let, me, let me say a bit by, uh, to introduce the stories in Maccabees, uh, and, then, and then I'll ask you to, to just do some reading um, so that we can talk about them. Um, so the books of Maccabees are, of course, not in the Hebrew Bible, not in, not in Tanakh. Uh, they are in what's called the Apocrypha. Um, sometimes there used to be a copy of the Apocrypha here, I don't know. Uh, but in any event, if you open a, a... Well, now you have to open a Catholic Bible, now meaning... <laughs> Yeah. After Martin Luther, um, so as if I remember the, the good old days when you know, it was just the Christian, the, you know, the, the Christian Bible. But but after Luther, um, so the Christian Bible has the Christian, which is now the Catholic Bible, has three parts. Um, three the three parts depending on how you divide it up, but for our purposes right now, three parts. Um, the Old Testament, in other words, parallel to Tanakh, so the books in the in the Christian Bible, which are also in Tanakh, uh, which of course is all of Tanakh, in different order actually, um, and sometimes with some pretty serious textual differences um, in terms of even within the book, different orders of chapters of Prakim, oh, yeah. Yeah. and sometimes there's extra. Th- but basically, the books that are in the Hebrew Bible are also in the Christian Bible. Uh, so you want to find the book of Shemuel, it's also in the Christian Bible. So that's one section of the Christian Bible, is the books that are also in, in the Jewish Bible. That's section one. Section three is the New Testament. The New Testament is obviously not in Tanakh, obviously not Jewish books. These are the Christian books, explicitly Christian books, uh, starting with, starting, meaning traditionally starting with the Gospels and, and Paul's letters and a couple of others, um, which describe Jesus and early Christianity and, and matters of, of faith that are obviously not Jewish um, and are distinctively Christian, and that's the New Testament. So Testament, of course, just means a covenant, a brief, and it's a translation of a phrase that we have in, in Yirmiyahu, in Jeremiah, where he actually talks about a brit chadasha, a new covenant. So that's the, the third part. The second part, which is not actually a second part according to traditional Christian belief, but is a second part from an outsider's perspective, uh, are Jewish books that are not in the Hebrew Bible, but are in the Christian Bible. So Jewish books, I mean, almost every single one, some of them are... One or two of them is a bit of a question about, but almost every single one is a Jewish book from before Christianity, mm. written by Jews for Jews, which are not in the Jewish Bible, the traditional Jewish Bible that we have, but were likely in some people's Jewish Bible uh, around the time of early Christianity or beforehand. So these include books like Ben Sira. Uh, ben Sira is uh, a Jewish sage who lives in Yerushalayim before the Cheshmonim, about 200 BCE, uh, writes in Hebrew. We have... He's, he's quoted in the Talmud a number of times. Uh, we have copies, not full copies, unfortunately, but, but parts of copies in Hebrew, um, first of all, from Mitzada. So and then the, the, the defenders of Mitzada, of Masada, uh, had a copy of Ben Sira with them. Uh, so we have part of it from there. We have a few more copies of it, also only partial, uh, in the Cairo Geniza. So medieval Jews in, in, uh, in Cairo had copies of it. Uh, and it's a Jewish book written in Hebrew. Uh, but it was preserved, but it was not in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible that we have. Uh, it's called uh, sometimes called the Masoretic Bible. It came through the Anshe Hamasora, um, but uh, but was uh, preserved by other Jews, and is also in the Christian Bible. Um, it was translated into Greek by Ben Sira's own grandson, uh, who didn't live in Jerusalem and didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in Alexandria, and this is one of the books that we actually know more about than most other, most books. We don't know how they got translated, where, when, and so on. 
But his grandson actually wrote a little introduction where he says, my grandfather wrote this in, in Jerusalem. Uh, he obviously didn't say in around 190 BCE because it wasn't BCE. Uh, but uh, it doesn't give dates at all. But he, he tells us what kings he lives under in Alexandria. So that allows us to just guess when his grandfather lives uh, you know, a couple of generations earlier. Um, so we know a little bit about this book, uh, which it, you know, is an interesting dynamic in and of itself that the grandfather wrote in Hebrew in Jerusalem, the grandson translated into Greek in Alexandria. But for our purposes right now, the point is just that that's a Jewish book, a clearly explicitly Jewish book, draws on Sefer Mishlei and the book of Proverbs, draws on other biblical books, has parallels with, let's say, Perkei Avot, uh, later rabbinic literature, is quoted in rabbinic literature, but is not in the Jewish Bible. It's only preserved in its entirety in the Christian Bible. Um, so there's about, I think, 11 books in the... So this section of Jewish books that are not in the Hebrew Bible but are in the Christian Bible is called the Apocrypha. Uh, I think there's about 11 books. Um, something like that. Wisdom of Solomon, right? Chochmat Shlomo, also Jewish book. Um, so there's some stories about Daniel, about the biblical and, figure. And Susanna. Susanna, right? So that's one of them. So that's actually one that that people think might have been uh, written after, uh, written in Christian uh, society. It's not really clear, um, but that's possible. But they're right, Su- Susanna, which is Hebrew Shoshana, and, um, and another story called Baal and the Dragon are both actually stories about, about Daniel, about the biblical figure of yeah. Daniel, but they're stories about him that don't show up in the book of Daniel, but they show up in the, in the version of Daniel in the Christian Bible. There's stories at the beginning and at the end, uh, in Susanna, he saves an innocent woman from the wiles of two lecherous elders who are really not nice. Um, uh, he's uh, sort of with his wisdom figures out to, how to save her. Uh, in Baal and the Dragon, there's a story about how he proves that the idols are false and that the priests uh, who are serving the idols are really tricking everyone. Uh, charming stories. Uh, certainly, Baal and the Dragon is, uh, are Jewish stories. Susanna is actually a bit of a question about. Uh, for our purposes, the two books that are uh, most important are the two books of Maccabees. So these books are in the Apocrypha. So in other words, you open a Catholic Bible <coughs> and they're there. Um, but uh, they're not in the Jewish Bible. And that also means that Jews didn't read them for more than a millennium. Uh, Jews didn't read books that were only in the Christian Bible, uh, preserved only in Greek or Latin or wherever, whatever language of the Bible they happen to have uh, in the nearby Christian towns. Uh, so Jews didn't read the books of Maccabees for a very long time, but the books of Maccabees are our sources for what happened to the Hashemoneim, to the Hasmoneans. It's what tells us the stories. It's how we know about Judah Maccabee and his battles and who he fought against and uh, the military uh, ups and downs and the, uh, the course of the campaigns. Uh, without these books and other sources dependent on them, um, we, would never, we wouldn't know anything about them. Just pass a couple of sources. Um, so the, the rabbinic literature, of course, tells very little about, about the Hashmoneim, uh, about the Hasmoneans. Uh, what they do say in the Babylonian Talmud, at least, when they say, what is Hanukkah? And the Babylonian Talmud says, well, there was this jug of oil. Right? Omitting the entire war, uh, which had gone on for three years before they recaptured Jerusalem and rededicated the Beit HaMikdash. Uh, that's not in the Talmud. Um, and, uh, and certainly not telling us not only that there was a war, but, but which battles there were, which generals he fought against. Uh, these things are all in the books of Maccabees. Now, as I said, it's not only the books of Maccabees, it's things that are dependent on the books of Maccabees. So Josephus, for example, does read the books of Maccabees, 
And in his history, he also tells us about the Hasmoneans and their battles and so on, but of course Jews didn't read Josephus either, uh, for uh, basically until the Renaissance. Um, the, uh, what Jews did read in the Middle Ages was a book called Yosipon. Uh, Yosipon is sort of a, a Hebrew adaptation of Josephus, um, shorter in Hebrew, uh, done by a guy whose name was apparently uh, Yosef something. Um, in, we don't know, actually know now a bit about him, but uh, in 10th century Byzantium, so in southern Italy, or Turkey, um, and, uh, and he, because he lived in Byzantium, actually read Greek. Uh, and he read Josephus, so he's an educated, erudite, cosmopolitan Jew. He reads Josephus and, and writes a Hebrew version of it, which is not just a translation. It's also, he adds different things in, uh, things that he knows from rabbinic literature, find their way into here. Uh, and because it's in Hebrew, that actually circulates uh, around the medieval Jewry. And actually, most of the medieval Jews thought they were reading Josephus. Uh, mm-hmm. In other words, they thought they were reading the second, second, uh, first century uh, late, late Second Temple historian. Um, ah, whatever. Okay, a bit, of a, a bit of a long story. Hopefully, we'll get to that when we turn to the story of the woman and her seven sons at the end, which does make its way, actually, uh, from the books of Maccabees <coughs> through different paths into Yosipon and then into medieval Jewish consciousness, um, although most medieval Jews and I think most modern Jews would have no idea where they got the story from. Uh, they know the story, but like where it comes from, what text it comes from, that's harder. It's more of a folktale. Uh, so we'll come back to that. Come back to that. Um, so again, the, the, the books of Maccabees, though, these are our best source. They're, the one, <clears throat> one in two Maccabees are not like uh, Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Bet, or Malachan Aleph, like, oh. first kings and second kings. It's not two halves of one book. They're totally independent mm-hmm. books. They have nothing to do with each other. Oh, they have something to do with each other. Uh, oh, great. So, the first one, so first Maccabees, is essentially a court history of the Maccabees, of the Hasmoneans, <coughs> written in Hebrew by someone in the court, in the Jerusalem court of the Hasmoneans in the following decades. Soon after, it's probably in the 140s, so a couple, couple of decades after the story of Hanukkah. Um, uh, and it's because it's a court history it's very much biased towards the Hasmoneans very much biased in particular towards Judah Maccabee Uh, so he's the hero and the story actually ends when he dies Um, it's it's basically about um, about him Um, second Maccabees is it says at the beginning in the version that we have the only version that we have says that it's an extract a summary of an original five volume book by a man named Jason of Cyrene. Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene, of course, in Libya. So this is not a court history. This is actually a diaspora Jew. Someone out in North Africa uh, writing and not clear what the original language is. Uh, there's no good reason to think it was in Hebrew or Aramaic. It may well have originally been in, in Greek, but explicitly we don't have the original. And as the version that we have says that it's not the original. It says it's only a summary of an earlier, longer work. Some people doubt that that's true. Some modern scholars, but modern scholars will doubt anything. Uh, yeah. So it's hard to know. Uh, there's, no, there's no great reason to think that it's not true. Um, but, uh, you know, on the other hand, we don't have any, any evidence of Jason's own book uh, either. What do you think? Exactly. 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 Um, all right. So, so we're going to look at the at the stories of martyrdoms in First and Second Maccabees. Uh, before I stand you to do this, um, I want to tell you just one one last thing about the difference. One one, one important thing, the difference ideologically between these two books, between First Maccabees and Second Maccabees. Uh, in First Maccabees, 
non-Jews are just bad people. There's really like no two ways about this. Pretty much every non-Jew in this book is bad. And why are they bad? Well, that's almost a tautology. They're bad because they're not Jewish. Like that's that's obvious. They're they're just not not good. They're not good. Yeah, first Maccabees. And therefore, if you have to explain why Antiochus, why did Antiochus do bad things to the Jewish temple? Obvious. I mean, he's not Jewish, so of course he did bad things to the Jewish people. Like he, that's only, it's in his nature. He's just a bad person. Um, there's no explanation really needed. Historic. It's, there's no historical background. So you there, you, I mean, we're not going to see too much. There is. There are stories told, uh, but they don't explain why would there be animosity. It's sort of taken for granted. Of course, there's animosity because okay. they're not Jewish, and we are Jewish. So, what else needs to be said? Um, in Second Maccabees, though. Uh, that's really, that's almost categorically denied. Non-Jews are fundamentally good, according to Second, Second Maccabees. They're not necessarily as good, but they don't, you know, they're, they're perfectly reasonable people. They're fundamentally okay. Jews and non-Jews should be getting along. Uh, there's no innate animosity here. There's no necessary conflict. So, but there was conflict, obviously. And Second Maccabees explains that essentially as a series of accidents, a series of misunderstandings, uh, a series of one party doing something that the other party just didn't really understand. So, some of this is probably familiar, but there are rumors floating around in Jerusalem that Antiochus was actually killed in a campaign to Egypt. Uh, they rise up, but they don't think they're rebelling, according to the second they, they think they're just, there's no king now. Um, so they put in a different high priest. Antiochus, of course, is not dead, so he comes back. Um, and then through a series of further misunderstandings, he winds up legitimately angry, meaning not the second Maccabees takes his side. Of course, he's wrong, but it's not, uh, it's not because he's a bad person. It's a series of misunderstandings and unfortunate coincidences uh, that lead to him being understandably really un- angry at the Jews. Again, not correctly angry at the Jews, but understandably uh, ang- ang- angry at the Jews, and then desecrating the temple and leading to the war and so on. So, of course, the Jews were right, but it's not because Antiochus is an evil person. It's because circumstances that he really couldn't control led him to the wrong but not totally ununderstandable view uh, that the Jews were rebelling against him uh, inappropriately and then he did things that were themselves inappropriate which the Jews responded to and so on and so forth. But this is a much later book. It's not much later, it's a few decades later. Um, But most importantly is that it's a diaspora book. Uh, This is a Jew living not in a Jewish state. So the court historian of First Maccabees can sit in Jerusalem and say, like, you know, we're always right, they're always wrong, we don't need their help, they're just bad people, go away. Um, they had just suffered. They had just suffered, and they, uh, <coughs> and they, uh, they have asserted their independence, right? The Jews hadn't had independence in, in uh, about 500 years. Uh, I mean, the whole Second Temple was un- built under the Persians and then under the Greeks, I and mean, they, they hadn't been, in the, they had been, somewhat autonomous in a practical sense, but they hadn't been politically independent in about half a millennium. That's a huge amount of time. Um, so they, uh, they're asserting their independence, they're asserting their autonomy, uh, and yeah, that's a lot of what the Hashemunayim said about themselves, was that they were, they were a, a nationalistic movement that wouldn't compromise on such things, would never give up political autonomy. We'll talk more about this... Um, Again, hopefully, hopefully at the end of today, certainly tomorrow, tomorrow, just, I mean, it's not a commercial, but tomorrow the topic is what the Hashmonaim and, and the Has- Jews under the Hasmoneans thought about the Book of Esther. Mm-hmm. Now, the Book of Esther, you can already think, is, is almost the antithesis of what the Hasmoneans did, right? The Book of Esther is a diaspora book, 
where the, the hero intermarries in order to save her people. And she does save her people, but she does it by giving up her entire sense of Jewish identity. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Uh, but the Hasmoneans never could have countenanced something like that. They couldn't have tolerated this being a, a Jewish hero. Um, so, but a diaspora, it's an interesting, interesting conundrum, for a diaspora Jew living in Libya, writing about the Hasmoneans, how do you talk about Jewish nationalist movement without sounding too nationalistic and too anti-Gentile? Right? He doesn't want to sound anti-Gentile. He doesn't want to say, Jews, of course, by nature, want political independence, autonomy, and will fight to the death to get it. But that's not a good thing to write if you're living in Libya. So how do you write about this without sounding, sounding nationalistic? So, so we don't actually know both sides are plausibly biased, right? So the first Maccabees has good reason to emphasize just how nationalistic and militaristic they are. Second Maccabees has good reason to play down how militaristic and nationalistic they are. Where the truth was, we don't know exactly, you know, somewhere in between there. Uh, but it's not like one is, is sort of objective and one is biased. They're, they're both reasonably biased. Could you say again what the time frame is for when Second Macabees was written because the way you just described the story is very resonant with Kamsa Bar Kamsa. Mm. Misunderstanding, more about Yehudaia, all that well, kind of stuff. Great point. Okay, no, it's, it's, much, it's much earlier. They were making Judaism. It's much earlier than that. Okay. Uh, it's around the year 100. We could probably be more specific, but I'll say around BCE. BCE. But I think that's a great parallel because that's a really great example of how Jews can tell a story. What was the, how, how did, you know, speaking objectively, quote-unquote, and politically, if you wanted to know, how did the, first, the second temple get destroyed by the Romans? What's the story that led to that? A big part of it is the Jews decided to revolt. Right? They, for reasons that are not entirely obvious, uh, they thought they could win uh, a military revolt against Rome. Right? The rabbis don't want to talk about the Jews revolting against Rome for all sorts of reasons. They're not pro-militaristic at all. Uh, they're still living under big empires. Don't want to even talk about the fact that Jews actually a number of times revolted against their, their foreign uh, imperial overlords, which you know, might sound romantic and uh, uh, modernly um, independent sounding, but it's, it's, it's politically a bad idea. Uh, so the rabbis tell a story that, oh, how did the temple get destroyed? Ah, it's a big, big, bunch of misunderstandings. It's not not the rabbi's fault. It is the rabbi's fault, but not because not because we did anything like militaristic. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's a great parallel to using misunderstandings to tell a story and sort of accept the blame without really emphasizing that we started this fight, right? Um, Were those rabbis who wrote. No, I don't think uh, they don't have to get the idea from there. It's the same tactic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this concept uh, about is, is more not it's a, not more complicated than second Maccabees. It's more complicated than we just said. But I think you're right that that's uh, that that's part of it. Yeah, great, great point, great point. Okay, great. So, so having said that, so uh, really the point is um, is that we have these two books. Ideologically, they don't speak the same language. They're really in different, they're occupying different worlds. And for our purposes, what we're going to see is that they also use martyrdom in very different ways. Um, so you have, you have, again, some relatively long excerpts from it. So read it at whatever, whatever pace you'd like. Essentially, what you have is some, uh, a good part of the very first, I think maybe the whole thing, actually. No, I skipped things in the middle, of, uh, of the first chapter of 1 Maccabees, which sets the stage. And then into the second chapter, 
And then just one short excerpt from later in the book. So that's essentially the first three pages. And then the next three pages are um, a little bit of chapter 6 in 2nd Maccabees, and then all of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Those are the stories of the martyrdoms. Um, so I gave you basically all of the people who martyr themselves in both books. Uh, it's not like I'm hiding the other parts from you uh, from one book or the other. Um, so I think, I don't know, 15 minutes or so uh, to read these things. 10, 15 minutes. We'll see. You'll tell me when you're done. Uh, and just pay attention to who's dying and what value there is in their death. Because uh, these are the first stories. Again, there's nothing in Tanakh, nothing in the Hebrew Bible of people dying for their faith. So these are the first stories we have in Jewish literature of people dying for their faith. Dying because they're Jews with the option of getting out of it. Uh, at least in some of the cases. Uh, and, uh, and you'll see that they're, they're, these are pressed into very different uses in the two books. And that's the, the first thing that we want to talk about. Uh, Alright, so let's, let's do that. So let's take, a, whatever, again, 10-15 minutes to read. If you, have a, if you want to read the Chabruta, uh, in English, so I don't know how Chabruta sounds, sounds to you. Uh, if you want to read it to yourself, that's fine. But if, uh, it's faster if you do it to yourself. That is true. Uh, but if you want to read to in Chabruta, that's perfectly fine as well. It's six pages. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. We've used some words that, are, that actually have, have, can only be defined negatively. Yeah. Uh, so Gentiles just means not Jewish. Pagans actually also mm. is, just means non-monotheists, uh, which is not a great term. I mean, it doesn't really matter if they're polytheists or monotheists. And if you want to say they're polytheists, we can just say they're polytheists. Pagans is almost exclusively a derogatory term. Mm. I mean, it's not not like cursing someone, but it's, it's basically like they're not yet monotheists or something like that. Uh, there's still the pagan population in this area. Uh, when you think about like Europe, right, so the Christians come up, but there's still pagans up north. Um, so they, it hasn't yet been Christianized. Uh, so it's also not a great term. Uh, yeah. um, anyway, but, okay, for our purposes, um, where do people start dying? <laughs> Which is what we're, the only thing we're interested in. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh. Terrible. Okay. Fifty-seven. Okay, great. Uh, yeah. So we have uh, we have the the uh, threat back in fifty. Who, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. And then in fifty-seven, uh, anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. And then it gets really gruesome. Uh, they kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns on the 25th day of the month. That's the 25th day of Kislev. Uh, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised, which is actually very interesting that it's the women, uh, because traditionally, uh, according to Rabbinical, it was a man's job to make sure that his son was circumcised. Um, but here it seems to be presupposed that it would be the woman's doing that the son would be circumcised. Um, gender plays, I mean, it's not our central topic, but gender plays a real role, even in these texts. Yeah. In what? Ah, interesting. That's interesting. Well, isn't Sephora circumcised? Something like that. <laughs> it's a very bizarre story, but yeah, she does something like that. Um, and, their, and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from their mother's necks. Um, okay. But many in Israel, but, meaning, despite the fact that we just said there was a lot of violence, many in Israel stood firm and resolved in their ha- hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food and to profane the Holy Covenant, and they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. What's that wrath? What's that? 
What's the anger that's tacked on in, in verse 64 there? A military Yeah, I mean, it is the death that we've been talking about. Right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's the persecution. This, there's great wrath. It's not divine wrath. This is the Greek. Oh, the Greek wrath. The Greek wrath, right. Uh, so we just got our stories of people dying, right? And they had the choice, right? It's only the people who insist on circumcising, who insist on not eating unclean food, who insist on walking around with the book of the law and so on. They die. So these are, these are martyrs. These are people who choose to die rather than give up their religion. What do we make of their death? What value is put into their death? Is seen in their death? It's pretty matter-of-fact, yeah. I mean, we don't know any of their names. There's no drama here, right? It's not like we get well, some... Har- I mean, it's heart-wrenching drama. because we read, but it, we don't read of some, some individual who was put on trial, who made... There's no last speeches, right? Which is well, that, often a key part. What? There's one last speech. The seventh. Oh, no, that's in second Maccabees. That was sorry, sorry, yeah. There's no last... Last speeches are a key point, right? Whether or not they happen in real life. And, and as you said, you know, and a lot of people who die, al Hashem, no one asked them to take the last few minutes to give us a rousing speech. Um, but, uh, but that's fine. That's, when the story is told, at least, that's often the most powerful part of it. It, it gives meaning to their death. Right? It actually allows them to choose, so to speak. I mean, it's, if it's not historical, it's not really them. But, but in the story, it's them choosing to, to explain what the significance of their death is. Right? I'm doing this to fulfill something, or to avoid something, or because whatever it is, it is, but here's why I'm doing this. Here's why my death is not just a tragic accident, right? Just another casualty of some grand geopolitical uh, force that you know, I really have no control over, right? Which, as you said, that, that, that's a plausible interpretation. I mean, whatever, Antiochus is motivated by whatever he, anger against Rome, and so on and so forth, and he's doing, and like people get caught up, collateral damage, they die. That's, to, to a large, that's in, a, in a sense, much more tragic than someone who dies and is able to say, I'm dying for X, right? I'm dying for something. In our case, we have something in between, right? It's not just dying tragically for no reason at all. They're dying because of their religion. They could have, could have given it up. They didn't. But they also don't give any particular reading to their death. They don't explain. They don't comment on it. Uh, there's no last speech. No one else, even the author, doesn't comment on it. Other than saying they died... For rather than give up, uh, rather than give up the books of the law, rather than give up their uh, eat unclean food and so on. Uh, well, but later no, he, 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 uh, they continue with uh, Pinchas, so that has mm. some positive. So let's we'll turn to chapter two in a second. Yeah. There's no reaction. It's not like Jeremiah who says he describes it and then he tells the reaction. To yep. It. Nothing at all. Yeah. Nothing at all. So what is the reaction? So great. So what is the reaction? Well, what comes right after this? Here, I didn't skip it all, right? Because what comes right after that? Marcus, yeah, exactly. Right? The Hasmoneans arise. Right? The rise of the Hasmoneans is a response to that. Right? They tear their sack clothes, put on sackcloth, mourn greatly. And the first thing that they do is react to these deaths. That's, to, at least literarily, uh, what gives the Hasmoneim their start. Is that they are leading the, react, the national reaction to these deaths. So the deaths are, I don't want to say meaningless, but they're not... Um, they're not the heroes, the martyrs are not the heroes in and of themselves. What they do do, though, is provoke the real heroes of the story. Mm. Right? Who are the real heroes of the story? So in first Maccabees, certainly, it's the Hasmoneans. And, uh, it's it's Matityahu. Uh, and then, and then uh, in, particular, in particular, Yehuda, uh, who's going to take over the war and become the 
become the political leader, uh, they get their start in reaction to the to these deaths. So the deaths in and themselves are. Uh, I wouldn't say just foils. It's not just that they die, but then the Cheshmonim arise. They're, they're to some extent spurs to the to the heroism of the Cheshmonim, but they themselves are not really heroes. There's nothing heroic about what they've said. At least, although we could imagine them being heroes, the story doesn't tell them as if they're heroes. It doesn't make them into heroes. It just simply says they didn't eat unclean food and therefore died. Uh, it's not a heroic narrative. Uh, of course, we might make include them on a list of heroes if we want to say, you know, people had the option and they chose to die. So we might say that, but the story itself doesn't make anything heroic out of them at all. Uh, other than saying they died and then the Hasmoneans uh, showed up on the scene. Do you need their death in order for the Hasmoneans to show up? Uh, well, the Hasmoneans, let's say their death uh, is the sort of epitome of what gives the Hasmoneans their, their start. So their, their so death is... Is a literary device? They, they I, I think it is... Uh, well, in real life, do we need them? Um, so, I guess it depends what you mean. But you mean if, if, the, if the Seleucids, if Antiochus, had not been cruel enough to kill people, but I, I sort of issued decrees, but then said, look, but at the end of the day, I don't really care what you do. Uh, so, yeah, it's likely that we would not have gotten as many in revolt, because what are they revolting against? Uh, so, in that sense, yeah, you need well, you needed that violence to give rise to the rebellion. Um, had they not cracked down that much to the extent of actually killing people then we wouldn't have gotten a rebellion so in a practical sense you do need their deaths in order to get the rebellion uh, but I think you're also right that literarily the author sets it up as they died, they arose so they're not, again I don't want to make them into foils like they're the poor weakless people who died as opposed to Hasmoneans but their death spurs on the I'm just thinking at what point do you rebel I mean you really need I mean depression. <laughs> I don't think there's obviously not a single answer to that question, but in, in, in the, at least in the context of this story, uh, it certainly seems like, yes, those executions of the people who wouldn't obey gave the... Was uh, a large enough scale, are you saying? That's, so in terms of the Hasmoneans or the persecutions? Persecutions. Uh, it's a good question, but it's also not clear how wide scale the rebellion was at the beginning. Um, it seems to be sort of a snowball. They start small, they're fighting guerrilla warfare. The more they succeed, the more people come to their side. They can fight bigger and bigger battles until they actually defeat a real general uh, only at the end of the book. Uh, and that day is celebrated for centuries. It was celebrated as a day of, the day of victory in the Hasmoneans because uh, they defeated the general Nicanor. Until then, it was, they were picking off some soldiers here, fighting a nighttime ambush there. Well, we're not going to talk much about it, but they... Um, but but the, you're right, but the persecutions were not necessarily all that wide-scale, but the rebellion also didn't start all that wide-scale. Um, all right, so yeah, so you, as you said, though, once we have the Hasmoneans, um, we actually get a, a new kind of, uh, they're not martyrdom, uh, there's a different kind of death of a Jew, right? Here they have a Jew who's actually willing to to offer a sacrifice mm. on the altar in Modi'in. Yeah. Uh, according to the king's command, so I don't, I don't know exactly which deity it's to, but uh, not to the God of Israel. And Matthijahu sees it, and is compared to Pinchas, right? which is really interesting. Pinchas is not someone who has a tremendous afterlife in Jewish thought. Uh, not so many people are compared to Pinchas, the zealot. Um, there's Pinchas, Eliyahu, and there's zealotry, and then the Eliyahu does draw on Pinchas, but then that's, that's more or less it, except for here and... and Echoes in different places, uh, much much uh, much fainter. 
but Matthijah was compared to Pinchas in his, in his zeal for, for God, uh, and actually goes and, like Pinchas, kills a fellow Jew who is about to do something um, which was considered to be blasphemous, idolatrous, sacrilegious. Um, so, uh, in, in Pinchas' case, it was also had something to do with worshipping of other gods. Uh, it was also sexual. Uh, here, it's only about worshipping other gods. And uh, kills him. They went to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. So, almost... You know, almost tempted to say that he offered this Jew as a sacrifice, yeah. right? Yeah. Of course, not to the Greek God, but to the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. But he's a sacrifice. You have to ask him a sacrifice yeah. to what, right? Yeah. Not to God so much, maybe to to the cause. Yeah. Uh, and Matthew, you know, if it's a sacrifice to anything else but God, even if it's the cause, mm. you could make a case that it's getting close to a little Interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, no, it's very interesting. The the whole concept of martyrdom. Dances close to idolatry, because you you have you always have to, except in the very limited case of someone literally dying rather than worshiping another god. Anything else, you're actually willing to die for a cause. Except if the cause is what God told you to do. Okay. Yeah. One one. uh, um, And Moshe Halbertal has a book uh, called On Sacrifice, where he says that the I can't quote it directly, but something to the effect that the modern nation state mm-hmm. uh, is the greatest idolatry the world has ever known. Yes. <laughs> and the, and the, the whole point is that the nation state demands almost endless sacrifices yes. of human beings mm-hmm. uh, in order to keep it. He actually uses the word mullah at some point. I don't remember. But yeah. Right. Um, right. Yeah, interesting. Halbert Howard. An Israeli. Uh, philosopher, uh, scholar. Yeah. Um, anyway, hopefully, hopefully we'll come back to that. Um, okay. So Matthew kills him and says, "Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me." He probably it probably sounded better in Hebrew than that <laughs> 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 in English. Um, but uh, all right, so they go out, and then I included this because it's not exactly martyrdom, and yet it, it it's actually relevant. Um, they go out, and then the Many pursued them, they encamped opposite them and prepared for battle against them on the Sabbath day. They said to them, Enough of this, come out and do what the king commands, and you will live. They said, We won't come out, nor will we do what the king commands, and so profane the Sabbath day. It's Shabbat, so they won't do anything, so the enemy attacks. So, Shabbat. So, they can't do anything. So, they can't fight back. They didn't answer them, or hurl a stone at them, or block up their hiding places, they can't build. They can't throw things in public property. Right? It's Shabbat. Not allowed to fight. Not allowed to do anything. So they all die. Let us all die in our innocence. Heaven and earth testify for us that you are killing us unjustly. So they attacked them on Shabbat and they died with their wives and children and livestock, a thousand persons. Now this is not uh, rabbinic law. Right? Uh, rabbinic law says uh, if any death is, un, is uh, in danger, you violate Shabbat. Um, we'll, you know, we'll come back to that. But that's true for any of the mitzvot, except for three that we'll, we'll talk about later. Uh, so certainly, if you have to violate Shabbat because someone's life is in danger, you do so. Uh, warfare even gets its own ex- extension that we'll, I'll say in a second. But certainly, defensive warfare is obvious. I mean, if someone's fighting you and you can, you can save yourself. Forget killing them. Uh, let's not even worry about that. You can save yourself by violating Shabbat. Of course you violate Shabbat. 
Yom Kippur. Oh, right, right. It's a great example, right? Uh, so yeah, so they have to. So the Talmud does ask, well, how do we know that? How do we know that you can violate Shabbat for to save a life? And really interestingly, there's, if I remember right, six different answers given, six different verses that are quoted to justify it. And let's say methodologically, if you if you're reading a Talmud, but really any text, and the the answer is clear, but there's six different opinions as to how we know that answer. It tells you something really interesting. It tells you that everyone knows the answer and the source is now being searched for afterwards. Uh-huh. Right? Clearly they're not trying to figure out what, whether or not we can violate Shabbat in order to kill a life because no one debates that. That's obvious. But how do we know it? Six different reviews. Uh, so, historically speaking, this is really fascinating because it's only 400 years earlier and they didn't know it. Right? It actually wasn't the case. They didn't fight. They didn't violate Shabbat in order to save themselves. And then what happens... When Matityahu and his friends learned of it, they mourned for them deeply, and it all said to their neighbors, if we all do as our kindred have done and refuse to fight with the Gentiles for our lives and for our ordinances, they will quickly destroy us from the earth. So they made this decision that day. Let us fight against anyone who comes to attack us on Shabbat. Let us not all die as our kindred died in their hiding places. So they consciously change the rules of Shabbat. They change the rules. They say, from now on, this is not sustainable. If we're going to be engaged in warfare which maybe we haven't been for the last few hundred years, but if we're going to be engaged in warfare, if we're going to have a state, right, we're going to actually need to, to conduct operations uh, that are military, you can't just sit back and say, like, oh, but now it's Shabbat, uh, not going to even defend ourselves. Um, and now, in case you were wondering, you know, does anyone actually listen to them? So that's just the, last, the last little excerpt here. When Bacchides heard of this, he came with a large force on the Sabbath day to the banks of the Jordan, and Jonathan said to those who were with him, let us gut up now and fight for our lives, for today things are not as they were before. Mm-hmm. So they do fight on Shabbat, a defensive battle. Interestingly, just parenthetically though, for our purposes, interestingly, there is a story later on in the book where Judah and his soldiers are chasing an army, and they stop because it's going to be Shabbat. So they, they let the enemy go, uh, because Shabbat, we can't fight. So no, no danger of life. Offense. Uh, offense, exactly. Uh, and there's no danger of life. The, the battle is already over. Uh, we're not going to die. They're just going to flee. Normal course of warfare, you don't just let them go. Pursue them. Uh, but, but Shabbat, let them go. Now there, the rabbis also say, no, no, no. You keep going. Uh, they learn from the Pasuk, Adridita, until you've conquered them, mm-hmm. that if you started a battle beforehand, you don't end it no matter what, even if at this point it's an offensive battle and sort of technically voluntary, uh, you continue to go. So, so this is a sort of, per- parenthetically, this is a really interesting case of the development of law, because when you get to rabbinic literature, this is just taken for granted. Of course you fight defensive battles on Shabbat. You even fight offensive battles on Shabbat, if necessary. Uh, in the times of the Hasmoneans, the first one wasn't known until Matadiao. He consciously innovated that law. And the second one is not known even at the end of it, that you continue to fight. Um, so it's just, that's really a parenthetical point for us, but it's very rare that we actually, actually see halakha developing. We usually just don't have the sources for these, uh, for these did things. Did you say there were 400 years difference between 38 and... No, I'm sorry. 400 years, uh, I meant between the story of the Hasmoneans and the, uh, the Talmudic passage that talked about uh, how you know that you can violate Shabbat to save a life. Okay, but uh, so we saw, unfortunately, a lot of people die in First Maccabees so far. Um, but they're not the heroes, right? Who are the heroes in the First Maccabees? Hasmoneans, yeah. And they're the ones who don't die. They're the ones who keep 
mourning for those who died, spurred on by those who died, making sure that people in the future don't die, right? So it's true in the Shabbat case, like, well, that was really sad that they died, let's make sure that doesn't happen again, uh, right? It's a sort of a tragic, tragic happening that it did, that it did occur once, and, and the Hasmoneans are like, we have to make sure it doesn't happen again, not that, uh, not that this is heroism in and of itself, right? On the contrary, this is a tragedy that uh, is not meaningless. But, well, they had authority in the beginning, they had authority in their own battle camps. So they're the ones fighting. So they made the new rules. Right? But it's really fascinating that, uh, you know, we don't know for a fact that it's a straight line to normative Jewish law, but it's the only source we have that indicates it. Um, all right, so, so the deaths are, like Rini said, they're, they're necessary. They're necessary for the story. They're necessary for the logic of the story. And they're literarily necessary to give the power to the Hashmonaim to be who they were. But the deaths in and of themselves are not heroic. They're actually tragedies that, uh, that then serve to give rise to the real heroes to do, to do their heroic deeds. In second Maccabees, though, they have a different story. So I left out the first five chapters, um, five and a half really, uh, where we get the, the persecutions and so on. And that's, that's what I was talking about, the misunderstandings and the rebellions and the high priests and there's internal Jewish fighting and fine. So there's already already persecutions. In all of those persecutions, um, Jews die, but not at the hands of the Seleucids. Uh, there are battles, internal Jewish battles, they're killing each other, different high priests, yeah. Um, but, uh, but no one is dying a martyr's death. No one is being told that if you don't eat uh, pork, um, you can live, but if you do eat pork, you can... I'm sorry, if you don't eat pork, you'll die, but if you do eat pork, you'll live, or anything of the sort. And then we get these, these stories. So these stories, which are actually technically in the middle of the book, they're, they're, they're right in the, in the middle of the book, um, are these two very dramatic, very long stories, the second one much even longer than the first one, um, of, of actual martyrs. Right? So the first one is Elazar, this elder, elderly man named Elazar, scribed in high position, a man now advanced, advanced in age and of noble presence. Um, who was presumably singled out because of all that to publicly eat swine's flesh. But welcoming death with honor rather than life with pollution, spit out the flesh. As all ought to go who have the courage to refuse, thing, refuse things that is not right to taste, even for the natural love of life. Right? So the author knows this is perfectly natural to violate laws for life. Right? This is not, uh, you don't have to explain why someone wants to live. That's obvious why someone wants to live. And yet, it's best not to do so. Right? And uh, sort of an explicit uh, uh, sermonizing here, and, uh, on the author's part. Right? As all ought to do, ought to go, who have the courage. Right? This, is, this is really what everyone should be doing. Not everyone did, but everyone should be doing. We don't have to review the details, but you saw that he, uh, he was treated not nicely. And he gives an actual speech at the end, right? It is clear to the Lord in his holy knowledge that, though I might have been saved from death, I am enduring terrible sufferings in my body under this beating, but in my soul I am glad to suffer these things because I fear him. And so in this way he died, leaving in his death an example of nobility and a memorial of courage, not only to the young, but to the great body of his nation. So this is the first death stand speech that we've seen, right? the first uh, gallows speech that we've, that we've seen. And well, why does he die? According to the speech, what meaning does he give to his own death? 
Yeah, great. So in other words, what is he afraid of? Not of death. He's right? more afraid of God than of God. Yeah, so he's afraid of the alternative to death more than he's afraid of death itself. Right? In fact, so much that he, he actually doesn't mind death compared to that. Right? That would be, that is the, is the, the eating of pork, certainly publicly and uh, you know, forced at the hands of the Seleucids. Like that, that would be terrible. That would be terrible. Compared to that, death is, is better. Right? Um, so it's great, right? the fear of him. As, I, as you said, Yerat Shemayim. Uh, I'm glad to suffer these things because I fear him. So I, I want to just note that because again, think about Rabbi Akiva as a as a foil to this. If you have to give one word to Rabbi Akiva's value to death, it's what? It's now I finally get a chance to show my love. Love, right? This is not all love. different things. This, this is not be all, right? Not fear. That's the Hebrew word all. Well, it's in Greek, oh. and I have no recollection. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I, I suppose I, I don't know actually. I'm not even sure that the same distinction is relevant. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's an interesting question. Um, but, okay, but as opposed to Rabbi Akiva, who the word is love, here the word is fear. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, not I love God and therefore I die for him, but I fear God and therefore I really don't want to violate his laws. Mm. So if I don't want to, really don't want to violate his laws, I'm glad to die. Not that I'm glad to die because death is good. Death is not good, but glad to die because it's the best of the really terrible choices I have here. Mm-hmm. And chapter 7, which we're not going to go through together, but is a sort of painful reading, uh, gives actually a lot of speeches. Right? So everyone gets to say something. Um, not everyone says something meaningful about death, but there's one, there's one idea that keeps running through. What allows them to die... What allows them to die without too much anxiety? Hmm? Resurrection. Yeah, there's yeah. going to be some sort of future life. Um, apparently, resurrection because they actually they, they're actually going to uh, will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life, right? So we don't know we don't know that much about what exactly they believe. It's a bodily resurrection, but we don't care so much right now. The point is that they really they're able to die because they fully believe this is not the end. This is the end of one stage, and it's coming too soon, and it's painful. Uh, but this is stage one. Then this is going to be stage two. And stage two, which may or may not follow immediately, we just, we just don't know that much about what they thought, right? We don't know whether this is immediate, they're going to uh, have uh, this new life, or whether there's some sort of uh, God Eden sort of thing, and then there'll be resurrection. But whatever, there, there is a future life, and that's what they're going to look forward to, and they've earned it through this, right? This is, this is what guarantees that they will be they will, have, uh, they will have this future life. Um, and each one of them says something, and again, most of them touch on this point that this is okay because of the future life that we will, that we will have. Verse 13, cherish the hope God gives us being raised again by him. 13, yeah. 13. 13. I mean, that kind of says it pretty oh, clearly. Yeah, cherish the hope God gives of being raised again by him, right. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life, right? Yeah, yeah great. And earlier, um, nine, the the second brother says, the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life. Yeah. Um, uh, Alright. Yeah. Now, of all the characters here, who plays the central role? Mom. Yeah, the mother. Mom. The mother, absolutely. Uh, who, again, if we're thinking in terms of gender, 
you might have noticed that she is um, she, she reinforced her woman's reasoning with a man's courage and said to them, do you like that line? That was good. See? It's interesting. It's interesting for a number of reasons. It's actually, yeah, it's interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, so, okay, so man's courage, that's not, I guess, you know, not so surprising to find that in a... Uh, yeah, men think they're so brave, but the fact is, the women have the babies, and it's basically not that's universal. I mean, not 100 percent, but the basic pattern is that women generally have babies, and men don't always have to go to war. So, okay. yeah. who's got more points? <laughs> suffering, strength, uh, blah, yeah. blah blah blah. But at least men were smart enough to a long time ago decide they were going to write the text, so they could right. decide. Right. Uh, right. Got it. Got it. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, uh, when you say man's courage here, I'm, I don't know if it caught my attention, but I'm just thinking that um, she's just speaking up. Well, that's kind of you know, and a willingness to die. It's a, it's the it's willing to speak. Right. I so, mean, I mean, man's courage. It's, it's, it's courage. I mean, it's right, uh, right, right. Oh yeah, man's courage. Just <laughs> right. We would just call it courage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right good point. Um, all right, fine. That's not, uh, I don't want to belabor that point. There's an interesting question of what they mean by woman's reasoning here, uh, what the author means by that, because logic was also typically associated with men uh, as opposed to the emotional realm. Uh, but reasoning here might mean the emotion. It's not entirely clear. So, I don't know. We'll we won't pursue that now. But, um, but she, uh, yeah, so she, what makes her the, the central character, the hero? What do you say? That woman's reasoning could also be Yeah, yeah woman's she, reasoning she, would have... That's, that's right. I mean, why let one son after another until there's going to yeah. be nothing? And it's just to reinforce her sort of normal women, womanly frailty with masculine courage and thereby came to do the right thing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, so what does she do, though, that's, uh, that's heroic? It's actually not her death that's heroic, right? I mean, yeah. her death is, is sort of oddly an afterthought. Oh, she listen, what's worse, to die or watch all that? I, I, a woman who buried a son, a teenage son, and then she was speaking about it once, and she said, well, I was at the cemetery, and uh, I said to myself, well, I could either just jump into the grave next to him, or I could go home and take care of the rest of my family. So which is harder? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, she I'm not. Going home care of the rest of the I'm not. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, sure. There's not even anyone left. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So we'll see that. Uh, we'll see later. Hopefully, that in in uh, some other versions of the story, uh, she actually explicitly asks to die with them, with the last one. Uh, she asks the king. She says, I, "Just kill me together with him." Uh, but in this story, she doesn't, and it's actually not clear in this story how she dies. Mm. Um, it could be that she died at the hand of the king. Um, but if so, she got the least attention in her actual death. She doesn't get to make a speech. But that's okay, because she already made uh, the most emotionally wrenching speech of the, of the chapter, uh, where she encourages the seventh son yeah. to not forsake her by giving in to the king. What, was the king. what did the king want from them? We should just note. Yeah, eat pork, right? So it's not idolatry. Um, in the other version of the story, which we'll see later on, it's about worshiping an idol. In this case, it's not idolatry. Uh, that's just not the issue. Eat pork. So uh, the whole 
the whole story, all both of these stories in, in Second Maccabees, uh, it's not it's not religious in the sense of I want you to be my part of my religion. <coughs> it's religious in the sense of I want you to abandon your traditional ways. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. The king actually doesn't care inherently whether you eat pig or cow. There's nothing interesting to him about this. The only purpose here is to get you to stop being particularly Jewish. Right? Whereas if you say worship my God, you could plausibly say I actually want you to convert to my religion. I actually want you to worship my God. There's some benefit here, cosmically speaking. Eating pork is vacuous, right? The only purpose here is to get them to violate the laws of their ancestors, and that's what they won't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll come back to this, to this issue, but according to rabbinic law, normally speaking, if <coughs> some madman says to you, eat this cheeseburger or I'll shoot you, so you eat the cheeseburger. There's no... Uh, we're assuming you don't have a gun. <laughs> Come back tomorrow. Um, but uh, there's no obligation to die rather than eat cheeseburgers or pork. Uh, but if it's public and if it's a decree of the king, then there is. Then there is. Because that everyone realizes, and it's true in these stories, and it's true in the Talmud later on, this is not about eating pork. This is about something much greater than eating pork. This is about national identity, um, tradition in the sense of of, uh, people having their traditions and their ability to carry on their traditions. And if the outsider can come in and say, you know, I decree that no one eat pork, well, that's very different than you now in McDonald's eat a cheeseburger. Uh, This is a threat to to Jewish identity altogether. So we'll hopefully come back to that when we turn, come to Talmud. But, uh, but in this case, it's not religious at all. It's just negative. It's that the you can't ultimate keep kosher. anti-diversity. Yes, exactly. Which is what makes it so puzzling in this historical context. Ultimate which is not our... Everybody's not our yeah. 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 Uh, no one can be distinctive, right? right. Yeah. No one can be distinctive. Um, okay, so let's just wrap this up and then uh, I think we'll actually take a few minute break just to get some drinks and food. Um, so after the death of, of the woman, uh, then chapter 8, meanwhile Judas, who is also called Maccabeus, right, the Hasmoneans is the family, Maccabee is technically Judah, but it becomes, uh, later on it becomes a term for uh, the whole movement, uh, all the Hasmoneans mm, yeah, get called Maccabees, even though, yeah, in the context of the story, it's originally just Judah. They each have their own names. Yeah, interesting. Interesting, right? Um, so Judas and his companions secretly entered the villages, some of their kindred, blah, blah, blah. They got 6,000 people. And they implored the, the Lord to look upon the people who were oppressed by all and to have pity on the temple that had profaned by the godless, to have mercy on the city that was being destroyed and about to be leveled <coughs> to the ground, to hearken to the blood that cried out to him, to remember also the lawless destruction of innocent babies and the blasphemies committed against his name, and to show his hatred of evil. So here, the martyrdoms actually play a quote-unquote positive role. Sort of hesitate to use the word, but, mm-hmm. but they play a positive role. Right? Because right. they're mobilized, exactly, not just for the people, but for who? A rallying cry for who? God. For God, exactly. Uh, the martyrdoms actually are supposed to waken God. Right? God, who has been sitting by and not doing anything in the meantime, uh, says, look, Judah Maccabee says, look, at this point you can't sit by anymore. If people are dying for you, if people are going to die for you, you have to get up and do something. So in the second Maccabees, 
Unlike first Maccabees, the martyrs are actually heroes. First of all, they're given speeches. Right? They actually talk. They heroize their deaths. Their deaths are, are given a lot of attention. We, we feel the pathos and we, we hear uh, what meaning there is to their deaths. And second of all, it's not just that their deaths provoke the Hashemoneim, who then are the actual heroes. Their deaths are what waken God. And without God, the Hashemoneim also wouldn't be successful. So the Hashemoneim and the martyrs together are what eventually win the battle. So it's the, the Hashemoneim are, are already there. But without the martyrs, God wouldn't have, have started to, to get involved. And then, of course, the Hashemoneim wouldn't have been successful. So the martyrs in Second Maccabees actually play a, a positive role. A positive meaning just in the sense of pushing the story along uh, and actually being heroes in the story. Unlike First Maccabees, where they're really just sort of at worst foils to the real heroes and at best spurs to the active heroism of the, of the people, of the Hashemoneim. Uh, in Second Maccabees, they're really, they're really pushing this along. Uh, they're really actually um, heroes in their, in their own right. Um, I, I think we're actually not going to spend much time on the book of Daniel, so let's just spend two minutes looking at the story, just to make the, essentially the comment that we already, already made, but let's just uh, look at it together. So there's, there's two chapters in the book of Daniel that tell very, very similar stories, really almost, almost parallel stories, chapter three and chapter six. Chapter six is about Daniel himself, when Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Um, he gets thrown into the lion's den because he insists on praying, at his window in, op- in the open to God when it's been officially proclaimed that no one's allowed to pray to anyone other than the king um, at the pain of death uh, by being tossed into the lion's den. So he does it anyway uh, and he gets tossed into the lion's den and then he's saved by some angels. Um, an angel. Um, in chapter 3, it's not Daniel, it's his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, um, who, again, similar story. The law was promulgated that everyone had to, at the sound of the symphony, it's really like a lovely, uh, lovely description, mm-hmm. at the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble. Uh, so when the symphony kicks up, everyone has to bow down to, the, uh, to this giant golden statue that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Uh, and Hananel, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, whose Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego, uh, refuse to do so. And Daniel's actually not in this story, which is interesting. Um, but, alright, we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. Um, and they, it's not, not exactly clear, but they apparently don't seem to, they don't try to hide either. It's not like they run to their house and like cower under their couch or something so no one sees them not bowing down. Uh, it seems like they're just they're standing oh. there and not bowing down. They're here. They're, we're standing in, in town square, but we refuse to bow down. So it's sort of obvious to everyone that they're not bowing down. They get called in, is it true you didn't bow down? Of course true we didn't bow down. And in, uh, in verse 16, 17, the, story, the, the stories in Daniel are in Aramaic. Um, they say, uh, we're not even going to answer to you. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't feel like, we don't feel like actually defending ourselves. Uh, because if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the, from the, burning, from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, okay, let him deliver us. In other words, if we were right to not bow down because our God is the true God, then we will survive this. And if not, then we were obviously wrong. And if we were wrong, we deserve to die. So one way or another, we have no need to defend ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Um, 
So, yeah. Are you trying to advertise for tomorrow? Is that... Tom <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, And the is, of course, furious in this answer. It's it really a disrespectful answer. Um, so he orders the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary, and they were bound, and they were thrown in. Uh, at the end of the page, it fell down bound into the furnace of blazing fire. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly and said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? And they answered the king, true. But I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. And then of course he calls them out and they come out and they explain that uh, God in fact sent an angel uh, to protect them. It's not totally clear how angels protect them from fire, but that's not really my problem. Right now. Hey, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay. I mean, in the lions, then, the, the angel is said to actually hold their mouths closed. So it's like, and there's a, sort of a, a rational explanation for how angels save Daniel from the lions, but like, it's not clear how angels save people from fire, in the fire. But, again... Not my problem. Ah, okay. Ah. All right, but. Ah, we're just seeing here they're all seeing it. It's not just very public. Yeah, you look into the furnace and you see. Yeah. Um, so just, just a. Like really just a quick, some quick points about this. So this is the only biblical text that we have of people willing to die, right? So Hanan and Mishan and Azariah are willing to die rather than bow down to an idol. It could be that they even provoke it by publicly not bowing down to the idol. Um, Daniel, as I said, also in the, in the parallel story, prays at his window. Um, so if you're just taking like three steps back, it would have been fine. Uh-huh. No one ever would have seen him. But there seems to be a provocation here on the part of the mm-hmm. part of the Jews. Oh, that's why, but Daniel's actually the first person to pray in the direction of Jerusalem three times a day at the window. So, um, it's the first time we see some of these laws in action. I don't think it's because of Daniel, it's probably the other way around. But, yeah, it's, it, is a, it is a really interesting, it's just like two lines, but interesting in terms of the history of prayer. Uh, first, first time we see it about that. So there's some connection to the outside world. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's a diaspora Jew, so uh, prayer... It's not only after the destruction of the temple, but it, it certainly makes more sense when you don't live in proximity to the temple. Um, <coughs> all sorts of the things that Daniel is interesting for the history of, of Tula. Mm. But for our purposes now, uh, so they almost provoke it. They certainly don't run away from this threat of death. But what turns out to be the case is that a really good, deserving Jew can't be a martyr. Right? That's a, it's a paradox. They can't be a martyr. Why can't they be a martyr? God. They'll be saved, right? That's what they say. They say, if God is, if we worship a living God, if, we're, if God is with us, He'll save us. We don't have to worry about this. So martyrdom is, is sort of by definition, in the context of these stories, it's actually impossible. Faithful people will never die. Now, of course, this is not said as a... Okay, good. So this is obviously not said programmatically uh, as a general rule that there is no such thing. But the only stories that we get in the Hebrew Bible of people who are willing to die for their faith actually don't die. Um, whereas, as soon as you get to the books of Maccabees, people are dying all over the place. Uh, including the best people, right? Hero- heroes are dying for their faith. They're, they're prepared to die, and they do die. 
so we'll, we'll actually see, hopefully later on, uh, that even already in rabbinic literature, this is asked as a theological question. Um, it's often actually put into the mouth of, uh, in two different stories, of the oppressing king, uh, who says something like, before he kills some Jew for being faithful to Judaism, says, aren't you from the nation of Hanana, Mishael, and Azariah? Where's your God who saves you? How come I'm, how come, uh, I'm about to kill you? And in the stories, they always answer something about their being, them being more deserving than we are, and we'll, uh, we'll hopefully come back to that. But the, uh, but the, the difference here is the fact that the Hebrew Bible tells stories that sound like martyrdom stories, but they're not martyrdom stories. They're anti-martyrdom stories. Uh, is, re- is noted already by the rabbis. Uh, the entire Tanakh never has a concept of a martyr. You can't die for your faith. If you're willing to die for your faith, God will protect you. Mm-hmm. What were you, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, just a question. When, um, when is Daniel written and when is it set? Mm, good question. So it's set in, Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian king, so early, early to mid-6th century BCE. Uh, when it's written is not clear, but the stories, these Aramaic stories, are probably, uh, yeah, certainly later than the Babylonians, but probably under the Persian Empire. So, 5th, 4th century, something like that. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good question. Um, okay, so maybe we will, let's pause here, I think we, we take a, take a bit of a break. Uh, but he, he died and then came back to life three days later, right? Um, but, but what's interesting is that even before his death, we're not going to spend much time on Jesus himself, because that's actually not so crucial. It's, it's indirectly crucial for our story. Much more important is what other Christians were doing and saying. Um, but, but we should just note this one passage in, uh, in Mark, um, which you have on the top, the second paragraph on page 9, where Jesus called the multitude of his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, meaning follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return to his life? In return for his life. So, even before the fact that he actually uh, was killed by the Romans, he's already talking about death as a means to salvation. That to die for the faith is actually a positive ste- step in the, uh, in the trajectory of one's religious life. Now, of course, the Gospels are not written anywhere near Jesus' own life. They're written 60 years later or so. Um, so we have no real confidence that this is something Jesus necessarily said. And in light of the fact that he does die a martyr's death and then martyrdom became, became common, it's at least plausible to wonder whether this is a notion uh, attributed to Jesus in light of what happens to him and his followers later on. But at least in the Gospels, this is something that, that, God, that Jesus said to have preached before he dies, uh, is the value of a religious death, of a death for, for the faith. But again, for our purposes, more than Jesus himself uh, uh, is the, the significance of, of the, other, the other martyrs, the, the many, many Christian martyrs. Now, we have a lot of martyrologies, a lot of Christian stories of martyrs, um, modern scholars, because, uh, as you said, this is their profession, um, tend to doubt that so many Christians were martyred, the Romans didn't have the incentive to do it, the Romans, eh, whatever, all sorts of reasons. Um, so we'll say that for our purposes, it actually doesn't even matter so much whether so many Christians were martyred. What matters is that the Christians talked about martyrdom incessantly. 
they told stories about martyrs all the time. If some of them turn out to have been exaggerated or not so true, or that you know, this particular person actually didn't martyr themselves, that's actually beside the point for us. For our purposes, what's really most important is that the Christians, for, for early Christians, being a martyr was something that was a, uh, a central part of Christian identity. The possibility of being a martyr, the stories about being a martyr, and the possibility that I could be a martyr uh, were central parts of, of Christian identity in a way that being Jewish never had those those aspects in ancient in ancient times because people weren't murdering Jews. Uh, there was no crime to be a Jew. You had these terrible times where you had, let's say, the Antiochus doing terrible things. So, unfortunately, people died, and some of those people contributed to Jewish uh, uh, victory through their deaths. So that's that's heroic, or it's tragic, or it's heroic and tragic. But it's certainly not something that I want to do. Uh, it's only because Antiochus was this crazy person, and so we had a terrible story. Uh, but to normally be a Jew under, under the Romans, you had no aspirations to death and no reason to think I would die. Uh, of course, we'll, uh, we'll see how that. We'll talk a bit about how that changes, but that's, uh, that was not a big part of it. <laughs> they would say it was in the Tati of date they were following ah, the Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. Absolutely. So we're just going to look at one, uh, <laughs> at one text, um, which I think is particularly uh, poignant and heart wrenching. Um, it's a diary, a prison diary. Well, it's, it's <sighs> primarily a prison diary of a young woman named Perpetua. Um, who is in um, who is imprisoned in Carthage uh, just at the beginning of the 3rd century so 202, 203 um, and then the, the book itself is, is we actually have much of her diary um, and then someone else added on before and after uh, so some background and then of course her death is not narrated in, in the diary obviously uh, she actually says, now I'll have to leave this to someone else to, write, to tell. Um, but we get some, some insight into her thoughts in prison as a Christian. So this is actually contemporary with the last of the Tanaim. Basically contemporary with the Mishnah. So the editing of the Mishnah takes place around the same time. It's, you know, yeah. Today we usually say about 215 CE. But basically this time, and within a decade uh, of this text, is the editing of the Mishnah. Um, so that's just for historical context. This is often Carthage. Um, um, all right, and what do we what do we have? So Perpetua, who's a uh, okay. So I, you know, instead of saying anything, let's just let's just read. Um, While we were still under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father said, "I, do you see this vase here, for example, or water pot, or whatever? Yes, I do. Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No." Well, so too, I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. At this, my father was so angered by the word Christian that he moved towards me as though he would pluck my eyes out. But he left it at that and departed, vanquished along with his diabolical arguments. For a few days afterwards, I gave thanks to the Lord that I was separated from my father. And I'm going to skip a bit. Um, but he, but we should just say that, uh, all right, let's, let's, skip, let's skip a bit. I don't see. Um, to the top of the next page. Then Tertius, or Tertius and Pomponius, those blessed deacons who tried to take care of us, bribed the soldiers to allow us to go to a better part of the prison to refresh ourselves for a few hours. Everyone then left that dungeon and shifted for himself. I nursed my baby, who was faint from hunger. So that's the part I was going to say as background, but she has a little baby. Um, and the baby, of course, is not 
going to die. Uh, baby's not a Christian in the sense of uh, having believed in, uh, in Jesus. Um, who was faint from hunger. In my anxiety, I spoke to my mother about the child. I tried to comfort my brother. I gave the child in their charge. I was in pain because I saw them suffering out of pity for me. Right? So the only pain she has is her pity for her family members who are suffering for her. She herself is perfectly at ease with what's happening. These were the trials I had to endure for many days. Then I got permission for my baby to stay with me in prison. At once I recovered my health, relieved as I was of my worry and anxiety over the child. My prison had suddenly become a palace. So I wanted to be there rather than anywhere else. The only, the only other point we should make about this paragraph is that Tertians and Paponius, these blessed deacons, are Christians who are apparently free. It's not like the authorities have cracked down on all Christians. This is pretty selective. We don't know exactly why she was arrested for Christianity, but there are open Christians who are coming to the prison to, to advocate on their behalf. Um, and that seems to be... Maybe they're still undercover. Well, they they bribe the soldiers to get them. To, <laughs> uh, well, maybe not on yeah, I don't know. Um, a few. Th- give us a break, you know. Do, maybe, so we have no information about what she's. She must be doing something more than professing. She or no? Nope. No. Okay. I mean, we do know that her parents are not Christian, so it could be she was singled out because of her uh, yeah. conversion, right? So you know, someone who was born into it, so to speak. Like, oh, fine, yeah. we don't, we don't. Gets how angry at you, but if if you are you know, born into a traditional Carthaginian family and you've just converted to Christianity, yeah. that we yeah. uh, but we don't, we don't really know. A few days later, there was a rumor that we were going to be given a hearing. My father also arrived from the city, worn with worry, and he came to see me with the idea of persuading me. And he pleads, daughter, have pity on my gray head, have pity on me, your father. If I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to preach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers, think of your mother, your aunt, think of your child, who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride, you will destroy all of us. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. So I think it's useful to think of him as, as almost a mirror image of the mother in the previous story. Right? The mother who, who said... Don't betray me, you must die, uh-huh. right, for the laws of your ancestors and so on. And he's like, how can you betray me? Don't die. Right? And of course, the circumstances are very different. She is converted to Christianity. He's not Christian. He has no interest in, in her dying for Christian faith, whereas the mother was Jewish and, and just despondent to the notion that her son would abandon Judaism. So it's not, it's not a him versus her, but the parents play uh, polar opposite roles in these, in these stories. Mm-hmm. There's no direct connection to this story, so it's just an art. She's abandoning the traditions of her father. Exactly, her father's, yeah, exactly. But this is interesting when he says, give up your pride. Yeah. Now, yeah. there's pride and there's pride. You know, one, if someone says pride is one of the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain, like, I, this is probably overdoing it a little bit, but almost a religious grandiosity about being a martyr. Mm. I'm giving up my life for the Lord. You know, Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, come off it, lady. Look after your kid for God. Ah, okay. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. No, that's uh. No, absolutely. So he presumably means pride. pride, meaning impugning her faith. Right? You're just doing yeah. this for your pride. But you're right. There is actually there's is pride. Like, there's religious pride. It's like a form of, you know, it's mm-hmm. like somebody who's just all over the top with it. Yeah, great. There yeah. is a <laughs> there is a joke. Um, so it's a yeshiva shuk. So the joke goes that in Europe there's a yeshiva bachar who is accosted on, yeah, I guess put it in like you know, the pale of settlement in Russia or something, uh, accosted by some, some 
Cossack. Cossack, yeah, I don't know, make it a Cossack, make it some guy, whatever. Doesn't really matter, yeah. Um, <laughs> 17th century people are like showing up in the 20th century stories but, um, uh, who says, You're a Jew, I hate Jews, shoot you. He takes out his gun, Cossack. And the guy goes, Wait, wait a second, wait a second, I'm going to die a martyr's death, I have a bracha to make. It says, an actual bracha. That was really, that was really moving. You're, you know, you have a religious thing to say before you die. I'm not going to kill you after all. Okay, goes, which is, which is, yeah. It's, it's, a good, it's a good joke for a lot of reasons, but it's, it's <laughs> nice. Yeah, whatever. All right. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Okay. But, but he did the... He, he made a blessing. He can't talk until the blessing was fulfilled. He made a blessing on martyrdom. Now he has to... He can't talk until he's killed. So. Um, all right. So the father... The father... Uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. The father... <laughs> the father pleased, pleads to, uh, to give up. Um, and then the governor... All right, wait. So let's go back. So the governor comes back, and the governor comes in, and again, like, like Rini pointed out a minute ago, right? she's abandoned her father's ways. So the governor comes in and says, have pity on your father's way, have pity on your infant son, offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. So in this case, she has to participate in, in a pagan sacrifice. I will not. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Um, I felt sorry for my father, just as if my, I myself had been beaten. I felt sorry for his pathetic old age. I said, she feels bad, but not feels bad like I'm doing the wrong thing. I just feel bad that he doesn't get it. He's, he's old. Yeah, he doesn't understand how how deep this can be. Uh, the baby comes back in again, but as God willed, the baby had no further desire for the breast, nor did I suffer any inflammation. And so I was relieved of any anxiety for my child and of any discomfort in my breast. Wow. Some days later, an adjutant named Prudence, who was in charge of the prison, began to show us great honor, realizing that we possessed some great power within us, and he began to allow many visitors to see us for mutual comfort. Ah, most valiant and blessed martyrs. This is after she dies. Truly are you called and chosen for the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. And any man who exalts, honors, and worships his glory should read for the consolation of the church these new deeds of heroism, which are no less significant than the tales of old. For these new manifestations of virtue will bear witness to one and the same Spirit who still operates, and to God the Father Almighty, to his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom is splendor and immeasurable power for all the ages. Amen. So this is the point that you made a few minutes ago. Right? Uh, she wants to die as a martyr. She has every opportunity to get out of it. Uh, but she, she very much wants to die as a martyr. That's, that's the aspiration here. Uh, it's not a tragic necessity. Uh, it's, it's actually something she wants to do. There's a, there's a positive, positive va- value to the death as, of, as a martyr, uh, rather than just something that's uh, an unfortunately tragic necessity. Now, I want to look at one Jewish text, which I think relates to this, I don't say directly, but, uh, but in, at least at least uh, clearly. Uh, so I have one version of it here. It's from the, what's print, it's usually called Targum Yonatan. Uh, targum, the Targum is a translation of the Torah into Aramaic. Uh, but in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel, in Byzantine times, it wasn't a straightforward translation, word for word. They had these expansive tra- Targum, where Midrashim, there were stories put in, all sorts of things added into the Targum. So if you went to synagogue, you went to shul, 
in the time of the Amoraim, the time 4th, 5th century in, in Israel, you would have heard the Torah being read in Hebrew, and then it being translated into Aramaic with all sorts of embellishments. So this one is from the beginning of Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. And the very first thing you would have heard in the story of the Akedah is this story. So the story starts by Achar Hadvarim Ha'eleh. It was after these words, or after these things, but after these, after these words. And, and that was the hook for the Targum to say, well, after what words? Mm-hmm. The Akedah came after what conversation? What conversation sparked the Akedah? Uh, so it tells these, uh, this conversation. It was after these words, when Isaac and Ishmael fought. Mm-hmm. Ishmael was saying, it is fitting that I should inherit Abba, because I am his eldest son. <coughs> Which is true. And Isaac was saying, it is fitting for me to inherit Abba, because I am the son of Sarah, his wife, and you are the son of Hagar, my mother's maidservant. Which is not a nice thing to say. Ishmael answered and said, but I am more righteous than you. Forget birthright. Right? By personal virtue, I deserve it. Because I was circumcised at the age of 13 years. And had I wanted to resist, I wouldn't have submitted myself to circumcision. But you were circumcised at 8 days old. Had you any knowledge, you may not have submitted yourself to circumcision. Right? I've already proven my worth, my, my, my faithfulness, my loyalty. Mm-hmm. You've proven nothing. When you were eight days old, uh, Abba circumcised you. So what does, that, what does that establish? Isaac responded, But now I am 36 years old, and if the Holy One, blessed be He, demands all my limbs, I would not resist. Immediately these words were heard in front of the Eternal Lord, and immediately the Word of God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. So it leads to the Akedah. So, this is exactly the point you made earlier, right? What did Isaac want? Isaac actually wants the opportunity to martyr himself. Right? If God, if God would point. ask for all of his limbs, he would not hesitate. What did you say? To prove what point and to whom. To prove how faithful he is. So what's, what's going on? So this is, I think, there's a, a really deep point here that I think we really have to, have to think about. So things that are good, things that are good, okay? I'm not going to ask how good. The things that are really good deserve sacrifices. Right? Deserve sacrifice in the sense that maybe I sacrifice to them. And they may even be so good that I'm willing to sacrifice myself for them. Now, we could argue about what's so good, but something that's so good deserves such a sacrifice. Right? Now, because of that, people tend to think that the inverse is true as well. That if someone sacrifices for something, it must be really good. It must be really good, right? And that, you see, there's no real logic to that. (laughs) Uh, And yet, we see it all the time. It's the power behind arguments that so-and-so gave their lives to such a cause, we can't give up the the fight right now. Which we hear all the time in wars. We hear it in in religions. Uh, We hear it in national causes. Uh, We hear it in social movements. If someone dies for the cause, how can we abandon the cause at this point? Right? They've given their life. Now, there's actually, I wouldn't say there's no logic to it. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is the logic to that? Let's say someone's died for the cause, for a cause. Someone's died for something, right? Someone, I don't know, we take to the streets and someone, someone is actually killed for, but, for something. You know, the thing is, do they give their lives or are their lives taken? You know, so great, okay, wait, so, so excellent. But did they give their lives? Their lives are taken away. And the sons of bitches who, who did it should, should have... Okay. So one second. So, but that's exactly the question. Yeah. Because the point is that 
Someone has died, and the meaning of their life is not yet determined. Who's going to determine the meaning of their life? Really, it's the successors who are going to determine the meaning of their life. And that's true... So if we give up the fight... Right. Let's. Say, I don't want to speak in any yeah, concrete terms. Yeah, I don't want to speak in any concrete terms right now. But let's say there's some group, mm-hmm. and some member of the group has died for the cause of that group, mm-hmm. and the rest of the group then says, you know what? Nah, it's not worth it. Right. So what has that death become? Meaningless. Meaningless. Yeah, totally in vain. I mean, that person died, and then we're like, yeah, that cause wasn't so worthwhile. Or maybe it scared right. the hell out of everybody else. But that just, said, well, that just proved we'll, that the cause wasn't we'll, so worthwhile. Or maybe we'll live to fight another day. Maybe we'll oh, that's something different. Okay, no, but if we just give up the fight, that's a different case. But if we just give up the fight, then we've just said, we've, we've said that death was, was totally meaningless. That death was in vain, right? It turns out the cause wasn't actually important enough. So that person died, our friend died, Well, there's no winning, really as we see with our wars. No what? There's no winning. Ah, Right, so, the, so the, there's a lot of emotional power to the argument that we can't turn our back on that person's death. Right? What does it mean to turn the back on? The person's dead. Right? I mean, the, person, the person's actually dead. What are we trying to achieve? We're not trying to bring them back to life in most contexts. We're not, we're not actually trying to bring them back to life. What we're trying to do is, is redefine their death. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Not as a death in vain <coughs> or as a death that was meaningless and in, this, in the end of the day just a tragic accident or even a tragic necessity, but just a tragedy. We actually want to turn them into a martyr. Now, what does it mean, turn them into a martyr? It means the cause is great enough that we'll all die for that cause if necessary. Right? They happen to have died first, but if we continue to fight, we are insisting, we're asserting that that death was a meaningful death. That death was for a cause that's worth dying for. Now, if I, if I claim that their life was worthwhile, I can't do that without claiming that my own death is worthwhile also. And so if I... If I really believe that, I need to continue fighting. Right? So now we, it's true, we hear this all the time. We hear it in, in context of modern warfare. Right? So once someone dies, right, uh, we actually, I mean, there are quotes uh, that President Bush uh, made in, in the context of the war in Iraq uh, where we have to make sure that the deaths of those who have gone already to their, to their graves, I don't remember exactly the quote, uh, are, are validated. Now we need to, to erect a, a democracy here in order to validate the death. The death already happened. But what is the meaning of that death? Well, it depends what happens now. Right? If we just say, like, yeah, okay, it's over, then the deaths turn out to be unfortunately tragic and really not more than that. But if we can do something positive on the basis of their deaths, then we retroactively validated their deaths as something worthwhile, as martyrs. Now, I find it really, really fascinating, right? Because there's something really amazingly powerful that the facts can be the facts, but the value of the facts can be determined by later decisions. It has nothing to do with the circumstances of the time, right? The person is dead. The battle is over. It doesn't make a difference anymore. And yet, what we say about that actually depends on what happens later on. Um, it's like the, yeah. it's like Christian, the Christian theology, early Christian theology, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Right, right, exactly. exactly. So now, what's happening in, in the story about the Akedah? So Yitzchak is essentially saying, I want to die a martyr's death. Right? I want to have the opportunity, at least. I don't know if he wants to die. He wants to be, be yeah, asked to die in martyr's death. Right, he wants to, to, to test. Uh, because, so I, so I think the, the basic point is that the Jews, uh, so I, I should say, this is before Islam. This text is before, this, this midrash, this dialogue is, is before Islam. So Ishmael, you can't read Ishmael as, as, a, as a code for the Arabs. Uh, Islam didn't exist. There's no, Jews are not competing with the Muslims at this point. Who are they competing with, though? 
competing with the Christians. Certainly in, in uh, Byzantine Israel, when Christianity is not just allowed at this point, but it's, it's the official religion. Um, and they're competing over the question of who's willing to sacrifice more. Mm-hmm. Now there's a paradox. Who's willing to sacrifice more is unknowable. What, what is knowable? Who did? Who did sacrifice more? But that, of course, is not up to you. Right? Who sacrificed more? Well, the Romans earlier, the Romans said Christianity is illegal, Judaism is not illegal. So the Christians sacrificed more. That's, that's sort of a straight up fact. That doesn't say anything about Judaism. Uh, it just says that Judaism wasn't illegal. So no one asked us to sacrifice ourselves. So why should we sacrifice ourselves? And yet, there's something that I want to call martyr envy. There's an envious, an, an, an envy of the other religion. The other religion was asked to sacrifice more and therefore was able to show how devoted they were. And we were never able to show it, because we were never asked. And that, of course, is a good thing, but it's a sad thing, right? We want to be able to show how devoted we are by the logic of what's good should be sacrificed to, right? And if we were not able to sacrifice, then one might claim our religion is not as validated, not as good. One might even say, hey, your religion doesn't ask so much. So, you know, is your religion as good? Do you really believe in your religion? I know they do because they gave their lives for it. What about you? You didn't really give up your lives for it. So there's a a voice in the Jewish tradition that actually wants to do this. Who has the biggest sacrifice? Exactly, exactly. Now, again, I I don't want to advocate this position, but I want to understand the position. The position is that because what's good ought to be sacrificed for, then the more one sacrifices for something, the better it must be. Which is a... I'm going to agree with what you haven't yet said, but you're going to say. No, which no. is that this is a, a incredibly dangerous line of thought to go down. Yeah. Uh, and yet, it's a yeah. really understandable one for people who, are, who believe in a cause. No, I was just going to make one kind of, sort of slightly off-to-the-side <laughs> comment. I, I once knew a very interesting Presbyterian minister, a very devout person, and he said the prayer that the, the Catholics call the Our Father and the Protestants call the Lord's Prayer, where it says, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, he said that really would better be translated, do not put us to the test, but deliver us from evil. Hmm. So, do not put us to the test, don't make us martyrs. Interesting. He didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. Right. Interesting. All right, so, um, so we're going to end with one with one text, and then I'll, I'll try to say something quick about it, but um, not in as much detail as, as I had hoped. So, so one text that we'll flip to, page 12 of the, of the packet, is, uh, um, is, the, is Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva's martyrdom itself is in the text at the bottom of that page, from the Yushami Brachot. We're not going to read that together now, um, but that's where he... He said, what we, we talked about at the beginning, that uh, he has been waiting his whole life to fulfill the commandment to love God with, his, with all of his soul, and he never had the opportunity, and now he's finally able to by dying. Uh, and so as he's reading the Shema, and therefore reciting that verse, he is actually ecstatically happy, laughing, uh, at the possibility afforded to him through his death. But... Rabbi Akiva is really fascinating because besides the moment of death, which is narrated as this moment of sort of ecstatic love in death, um, he's quoted in life as teaching very similar things. So at the top, the top of the page, 
in the passage from the Mechilta, which is the Halachic Midrash, the Tanaitic Midrash on Shemot, on the book of Exodus. And it's commenting here on the, on the line from the Song of the Sea of Shiratayam, Ze'ilivan Vehu. This is my God and I will beautify him. Mm. And Rabbi Akiva says, I'm just going to read it in English, but for all the nations of the Lord, I shall hold forth on the beauties and splendor of him who spoke and the world came to be. For lo, the nations of the world keep asking Israel, What is there about your beloved more than another beloved, or most beautiful of women? This is, of course, from Shira Shirim, from the Song of Songs, which was taken by Rabbi Akiva and by all the rabbis to be an a, uh, allegory or a metaphor for the relationship the relationship in the Song of Songs, the relationship between God and, and Israel. And quoting these other women in the Song of Songs, uh, he attributes this line to the other nations of the world, who ask Israel, what's so special about your beloved? Why are you so, uh, so in love with your beloved? What's so special about him that you keep searching for him and so on? That for his sake you die. For his sake you are slain. As it is said, Alkain alamot ahevucha, some line earlier in Shirashirim, for thus do the maidens love thee, which Rabbi Akiva glosses is as not alamot, or maidens, but almot, until death. That we love you till death. Uh, we love you until death. And it is said, for your sake we have been killed all the day. So the nations ask Israel, why do you like to die for God? What's so special about God? And Israel applies to the nations of the world, do you know him? Let us tell you some of his praise. My beloved is white and ruddy, and they quote other lines from Shira Shirim, which we won't, uh, won't worry about too now, so much right now. And I'm also not going to worry about the meaning of this. So what is Israel saying about God right now? Let's leave that aside. But they're saying something about what's so wonderful about God that we're willing to even die for him. And when all the other nations hear, they say to Israel, wow, he really is, he really is amazing. Let us go along with you. Right? If, if this God is so wonderful, we want to join with you in this relationship with God. But Israel applies to the nations of the world. You have no part of him. On the contrary, mm-hmm. my beloved is mine and I am his. This is a monogamous relationship. Right? And there's no room for anyone else to join. So I, I love God. God loves me. You can't be, you can't be part of the story. Now, um, in the in just a minute that I'll, I'll take, I, just, I want to say uh, a couple of points here. Rabbi Akiva is, takes love very seriously. I mean that on the mundane realm, in the mundane realm. So he, there's stories about him and his wife. Uh, they have a bit of an odd relationship, but, uh, but <laughs> apparently one uh, full of love. I'm not going to judge their, their love. Um, but there are halachic rulings that he makes that depend on him taking the spousal love very seriously. Um, he insists that a woman, even when she's in Ida, can put on makeup, can get dressed up, because otherwise it would be a uh, damaging to the loving relationship between the two of them. Uh, he also says that divorce is allowed. You don't need any um, fault, per se. Mm-hmm. If the love is not there, then divorce is allowed. So that's, that gets a little bit more complicated, but I'll I'll put it that way for our, our context. Um, he also says, now moving back to the religious realm, that the most sacred of all the biblical books is Shir Shirim, the love story. Uh, not presumably because he thought of it as a, as a profane book, as a mundane book, but because the love was the 
most sacred of all the emotions uh, when it came to the religious realm as well. Now, all of that comes to a climax in when he thinks about uh, martyrdom. When Rabbi Akiva thinks about dying, uh, the epitome of dying, the epitome of the relationship between Israel and God, is a willingness to love God until death. To love God so much that one is willing to die for God. And in his own death, that's actually concretized in a sense. Uh, it, by him quoting the Pasuk, that one has to love God with all his soul, and he's able to do that with his dying, dying breath. Now, there's, there's a... I, I can't get over the, the circle that we have here, because this is so essential to Rabbi Akiva's own teachings in life, and then is told in death as well. Now, it's possible, of course, that some of the teachings are, are attributed to him later on, because he is the person who dies this way, but it's so pervasive in the, in the, uh, in the traditions about Rabbi Akiva that it's not, it doesn't seem plausible that it was all... Uh, all retrojected, and there seems to really be a, a circle of his teachings in life and the stories of his death uh, that actually sort of cohere in a way that typically people don't get to do. <laughs> people, don't, people don't get to choose their death in a way that so epitomizes what they held most central in life. Uh, and in Rabbi Akiva, that's actually what we find. And we find that his teachings revolve around the love, love, human love, uh, and then human love as being uh, code for, stand in for the uh, epitome, the, the ideal relationship between Israel and God, and that those themes are the ones that come up also in his own, in his own death. And he's the only one, he's the only Jewish figure where we hear such positive um, desire for death, and then in death an expression of love uh, um, as seen through the death. So. Some people think. Some people will say, "Oh, this is, this is Christian influence." I mean, Rabbi Kiva is living a century after the the uh, death of Jesus. Um, Christians have been thinking about death as an ideal, and so we see it. We didn't see that back in Maccabees. We didn't see it back in Tanakh. But here we see it in uh, in Jewish thought uh, that Jews are also starting to think about death as an ideal. Uh, and of course, that's not. Uh, I certainly wouldn't discount that possibility. Again, there is there is something like martyr envy. But I think it's also, I think we can't overstate that, because there's also something about Rabbi Akiva himself in life um, that's not typical of Jewish thought in his own day or later days. Uh, something specific to Rabbi Akiva, thinking about love as the ideal relationship between the individual Jew and God and the nation of Israel and God, and that that comes through in the stories of his martyrdom uh, also. So it's not... Uh, again, not to say that it's not Christian influence, but that there's, there's a broader world here. There's a world in which martyrdom has become a much more uh, pervasive reality um, in Israel. Um, and that's not, uh, not so much influence as much as in the air. Uh, and it's not that Jews are reading Christian texts and saying, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Let's rethink what martyrdom means. Uh, let's just redefine it. Uh, as much as a deep-seated, uh, deep-rooted sense of martyrdom as as uh, religiously meaningful. And Rabbi Akiva teaches this during his death. He obviously couldn't have, during his life, he obviously couldn't have known that in the last few years of his life, when he's already, in, apparently in his 70s, uh, Bar Kokhba's revolt would have uh, started, and he joined as a spiritual leader. So I mean, he's not fighting, apparently, but, but as the one who acclaimed Bar Kokhba as the Messiah, and therefore gave religious imprimatur to the revolt, uh, it turned out to have been a catastrophe, um, but in the context of it, apparently in the context of it, he died. That's not totally clear what exactly, 
the assumption is that he dies during the revolt. Uh, that's the only time we have religious decrees that ban learning of Torah and other sorts of things uh, at the end of his life, and we have no indication that he survived the revolt. So it seems like he died in the context of the revolt, not as a soldier, uh, but as someone who stood up for the nationalistic cause through religion. It's, it's impossible, really, in the Jewish context to divorce nationalism from religion. When you talk about the traditions of the ancestors, the laws of the ancestors, do you want to talk about that as nationalism? Do you want to talk about it as religion? Those are really two sides of the same, same coin. So Rabbi Kiva dies as a nationalist icon who expresses that through his religious actions, through his learning of Torah, teaching Torah, uh, and dies a martyr's death, which then turns out to have incorporated all the elements of his central teachings in life. There's no way he could have known that that would happen at the end of his life. Um, but so, so this is, again, not so much not Christian influence as much as a broader discussion, which comes to the fore in the person of Rabbi Akiva in ways that he couldn't possibly have, have anticipated uh, and yet worked out remarkably well in this particular individual. So this is partly a question of Jewish Christians' uh, thought sort of developing along similar lines, but also partly about Rabbi Akiva as a, as a really unique uh, teacher, politically and, and particularly spiritually. So some people do say that. Wait, 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 I'm yeah. Just, I'm just throwing out for a minute because I want to go back to my own okay. now, which is about liturgy and about why we have a Salah Hongi Malchut mm. on the day when we are pleading for our lives. Mm-hmm. Why are we having this terrible, terrible story about them mm-hmm. and this new insight that you bring about mm. Rabbi Akiva's death being kind of the epitome of it's Bad Babad. Mm. You know, one. Okay, great. So in the, in the development of the liturgy of the Yom Kippur, right. how, how does that play? Right. How so that it's decided to be included? Great point. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible, right. It is terrible. So, uh, since we're out of time, I'll just say a couple quick things. Um, first of all, the Asarah Harugim Lachut is... It's not, I mean, it, it might be, a, each one of them might be historical, but the ten of them didn't live at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a later sort of weaving together, yeah. But that's really, so it, it's, it's really, not the only, but the, there's a couple of classic Jewish martyrologies, right? So Jews don't have lots and lots of stories of martyrdoms. Uh, we do, at least until the medieval period, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, from the ancient period, you have the story of the woman and her seven sons, which becomes all over the place in medieval Europe because they want older stories of Jewish martyrdoms, but we don't have so many. And the Asarah Harugim Malchut. I'd say those are the two classic ones. There's other ones in, in Chazal that pop up here and there, but those are the two classic ones. Masada does not play a role in Jewish thinking. Um, the Jews don't know the story of Masada for 1,500 years because uh, it's only in Josephus, and they don't, just don't read Josephus. But the... Um, uh, Yosipon actually does tell a story, so they know something about it, actually. I take that back. So they know something about it, but it's uh-huh. it's, uh, no, it's not a big part of their yeah. of their thinking. Uh, but the Asarah uh, Gemachud are twice in the liturgy: once on Tisha B'Av, where it's a lament, right? It's a straightforward lament. We're just lamenting the death of uh, great people in our nation. We lament everything on Tisha B'Av, so add that into the mix. Uh, and then once, as you say, on Yom, on Yom Kippur, where it obviously serves some other 
some other rule, right? So we're, there are also laments on Yom Kippur, but not not uh, not at that point in the liturgy. Only after the Avodah uh, we have laments. Uh, at that point, I agree with you. So what, how would you express it? I, I don't know. No, but you said something. It's the first time I, it, it, it struck me that on the day when we were pleading for our lives, right? And, and you know, that's what you teach the third and fourth graders. We are standing before the king. We are standing before the judge. We are pleading for mm. our lives. We beg his mercy. We try to put you know, our best, you know, foot, put our best foot forward. Remember us for our good deeds, etc. All of a sudden, there's this, and, and as you say, it's after the Abu which supposedly was the epitome of the opportunity to do tshuva, hmm. and, and, right. and now the whole, the whole uh, am is, you know, forgiven, so to speak, hmm. by virtue of this. You know, yeah, so it comes earlier, but I, yeah. Dramatic, you know, but in the liturgy... And now you have this story, which is absolutely horrifying. It's pretty hard, man. the purpose of that story? What are the people in the liturgy, you yeah, don't yeah. do slichot after the Avodah. Yeah, it's not, this doesn't and come out after the Avodah. After the Avodah, we really have, essentially, uh, laments for the fact that we can't do the Avodah anymore. But that's right, sort of an but internal but report there. In, in the liturgy itself, after the Avodah, you don't have slichot. As a um, as a prayer, it, it doesn't come back. I mean, this is instead of. Okay, so let's let's well, put that aside. In, in the old procedure, we actually do have sleeve. Most people, do, most congregations don't say them today. But um, all right, let's, let's leave that aside. But uh, yeah, going back to the martyrs. So I, I agree with you that the, the power of the martyrs there is not a lament. It's not that we're just bemoaning the loss of these great people. It's, it's like Rabbi Akiva, that we love you so much that we are willing to die for you. And uh, you know, the, the expectation that this is a covenant, right? So if we're willing to die for you, I need to do with Odili. So then you have, to, you have to remember us as well. So the, um, there is, yeah, the... I think it's worth, I don't know, not for now, but I think it's worth looking at that at the text. Because the, in, in the Piyut itself, um, there's this connection to, well, at least in some versions of the Piyut, there's a connection back to the sale of, of Joseph, um, which puts a whole different spin on, this, on these deaths uh, that actually deserved in a, in a sort of weird way. So I think there's a lot to, a lot to think about there. Right, exactly. So it's, it's a, I think it deserves its own discussion, not for now, but I think you, let's just make the, let's just make the basic point that martyrdoms can be multivalent, right? So we can lament them, but they can also have different sorts of power, and we can tell the same story to, to make different points. Uh, so Rabbi Akiva's martyrdom is very different from, let's say, the woman and her seven children, um, and, and so on.